I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. We're talking a Christmas carol. Hit it. It was 1984. The Soviet Union boycotted the LA Olympic Games. English pound notes were taken out of circulation. Michael Douglas romanced the stone, and George C. Scott was visited by four ghosts to help him change his ways. I'm your host, Jerry D., with another episode of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, we got it covered. Joining me is a very special guest, You'll know him as the host of the legendary Christmas Past podcast. It's Brian Earl. Brian, how's it going? Hi, very well. Thanks for having me on, Jerry. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. I, I've want, been wanting to get you on for quite a while, and of course, we things get busy and uh, all that. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad you finally could do it. Yeah. Yeah. Happy it all worked out. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, I hope you don't mind me saying legendary or things like that. But you're you're kind oh, of. Oh, I don't mind that at all. In fact, if you want to say it again, I would not. Be <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're you're like the the godfather of a uh, Christmas podcast. So <laughs> it is funny when I uh, launched Christmas Pass in 2016, there were I, I didn't count, but under a dozen other Christmas podcasts. I think right. the one that really. Uh, helped me to understand that an ordinary guy like me could create a Christmas podcast in a closet in in uh, his place in San Mateo, California. Was a great podcast that's no longer around. It's the Christmas Stocking by Lee Cameron. Yeah, and then all the other Christmas podcasts were it would be like like a church would release their Christmas sermon as a podcast feed, or a couple of those internet radio stations would release a playlist of Christmas songs. Right, they were really very very few, and so. I think when Christmas Pass started in 2016, it was just one of a small handful. And then it was 2018 that it just really took off. That's where we saw the likes of Deck the Hallmark. I think Tis the Podcast came around that time too. And mm-hmm. of course, as you know, every year it just keeps growing and growing and growing. So, yeah. Oh, I know. Yeah. It seems like every day there's there's another Christmas podcast I got to add to my little list of uh, folks that are getting on. <laughs> I was doing my very best last year to keep up with it all. I created a directory. It's still I on my that. site, the definitive yeah. directory of Christmas podcasts. But of course, it's no longer definitive. It's really, it's a good problem to have when there are more Christmas podcasts than you can possibly keep up with. But discoverability is, a, in general, is a big issue for podcasts and Christmas ones especially. Mm-hmm. So I, I say if you type Christmas into your favorite podcast app, you'll find a handful of Christmas podcasts, but then it'll also be the Christmas episode Episodes. of some other podcast that has nothing to do with Christmas. Right. Or just an episode of something like, I don't know, just some regular podcast that happens to mention Christmas. So I was doing my best to try to help uh, get most more Christmas podcasts discoverable. Uh, but even uh, it very quickly became uh, something that was almost impossible to do. <laughs> I, I understand. Yeah, it seems. Uh, so there's that Christmas podcasts podcast, which is, you know, the very meta mm. one by Sean, where he just kind of puts them all together. Um, and that one, it seems like they're adding some every day as well. So it's just I'm trying my best to keep up. And uh, and same thing, just spread some more Christmas cheer. So mm-hmm. thanks. Thanks again for coming on and, and helping us small guys come out. To, <laughs> so I really appreciate that. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
But we're actually here to talk about the 1984 made-for-TV movie released in Britain theatrically, uh, A Christmas Carol. This version was one that um, I remember seeing, but I didn't remember a lot of specifics about it. I just had vague recollections. And when I'd see a, a still from it, you know, it was one of those where you'd kind of point at the screen and say, oh, yeah, I know what that is. And that's really about it. But what's your experience with the Christmas Carol in general and then um, per this particular version? I think with the Christmas Carol in general, like most people, uh, most people in general, but certainly most people my age, my first experience with it would have been a cartoon version, mm -hmm. um, probably Mickey's Christmas Carol. I think yes. I had a, a book with a cassette tape that, that narrated this, you know, with one of those, when you hear the chimes ring, it's time to turn the page, one of those kinds of things. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then later on, I found on eBay, a, a, a one with a 45 record. And nice. so, you know, like Goofy is Jacob Marley, Jiminy Cricket plays, uh, what is he, the Ghost of Christmas Present or Ghost of Christmas Past. Past. Mm -hmm. And then I think some of my experiences after that would have been other cartoon versions, which honestly, I can't remember which ones I've seen. There are so many. Mm -hmm. Some of them were just, you know, one-off generic ones. There's one um, from 1971, so before my time, but I certainly saw it growing up, that right. was, and I believe it had Alistair Sim voicing the character of... Ebenezer Scrooge. I could be wrong about that. But what I remember most about this one, and it's available on YouTube, is that the ghosts were very, very cool looking. Uh, nice. The ghost of Christmas past especially seems to have like three or four faces that are moving and morphing as she talks. Uh, and it's surprising that that would make that a children's cartoon because it's almost spooky. But to an adult, it's like, wow, that's that's kind of cool and edgy looking for a 70s children's cartoon. And uh, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that's actually how the ghost of Christmas past is described in the novella. Mm -hmm. that, you yeah, know, not, yeah. You can tell if he was, you know, old or young. Sometimes he had a few eight arms. Sometimes he had, I mean, just like continuous morphine features. So that's yeah, really yeah. cool. Yeah, that's it a, very, is a very, very cool visual. Yeah. And so I think that was most of my experience, you know, the, the children's versions of it, various cartoon versions of it. And I was born in 74. So by the time this one came out in 84, I was 10 years old. And I, I honestly don't remember watching it as a child. Right. My first memory of it, if I search really deeply, is probably more in my teens or something, maybe okay. in the early 90s, perhaps. So it's just a few years old at that time. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and I never read the novella start to finish until I was maybe in my mid to late twenties. That's actually very similar to myself as well. It, it wasn't until I was in college that I actually sat down and read it. And I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it, uh, it, it's everything that you want it to be after watching all the different versions, because like mm -hmm. you, I also was introduced to it through uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol. I yeah. think, you know, it was the same thing. I, I did also have uh, the book same <laughs> as well. The, I think mm -hmm. mine was on tape, though. I don't think it was on record. I think it was a tape version of it. Um, but it was the same thing. As soon as it, you know, like you said, you, you, when you hear the chimes, turn the page. It was like, <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Although I believe at that point, uh, the version that I had, I think it had the Wicked Queen in her witch form as the ghost of Christmas future. Instead. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, it was a, a little bit different. I think Merlin was the ghost of Christmas past as well, uh, instead mm -hmm. of Jiminy Cricket. And then that was changed for the for the theatrical release of that. Um, but sa uh, same thing, I just that's how I grew up with it. And I remember watching Rankin Bass's uh, The Stingiest Man in Town as well. Mm -hmm. They'd show mm -hmm. that, uh, which uh, <laughs> Walter Matthau as Scrooge is uh, amazing. But, um, you know, that was my experience with it. Eventually, I saw other versions, um, the Alistair Sim, um, the very popular one, and then um, Scrooged as well, but with Bill Murray, uh, which I think that one and Muppet Christmas Carol are probably my favorite theatrical versions. This one, 
again, I don't really recall, just like you, I don't have very strong memories of, but I, I just have visions um, like the Marley, this particular version of Marley, for some mm-hmm. reason always stood out to me. And I don't know if it's because he was just a, a little bit more portly than some of the other versions uh, mm-hmm. or, or his manner of walking. Something about him just always stuck out to me. So I remember Marley and I remember the ghost of Christmas present as well with his green mm-hmm. robe and, you know, the the beard. And uh, which, uh, of course, Ghost of Christmas Present, I think, is my favorite ghost out of all of the spirits. But, uh, you know, it was just something very memorable, but nothing very definitive. And if, if you would ask me who played what, uh, I couldn't tell you at the time. It was just, yeah, I remember that guy. That guy was in that thing and he did it. Uh, so so that's kind of my experience with it as well. And and in college, you know, I, I ended up, did reading the novella and um now it's one of those where i have to read it every single year it's it's just like a tradition to me to to sit down every christmas tide if i can and you know it's not a a very uh long read it takes you know no time at all really to get through the whole thing but yeah i think it's only fifty thousand words or something like that something like that yeah it's really small and you know it's the same experience like any bringing any book to the screen you're necessarily leaving out a lot of the you know the, the descriptions and things like that it all has to be visual and so the first time you read it you really you pick up on a lot of the you know just even the whole marley was dead to begin with and then mm-hmm. going into like oh i guess a doornail could be dead you know like you don't get those <laughs> yeah. in the movie there's a lot of kind of wit and witticism going on from yes. the narrator of the story that never translates to the screen uh, yes um, and even one of my favorite theatrical readings of the story is one that um sir patrick stewart did where it's available on a cd i think it, you yes. can probably find it on the internet where he does this one-man production of it uh, and it's, I think it's condensed down to an hour or so or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then comparing that to the actual movie version that he did, I think it was about 10 years ago, which I, I was not a fan of at all, I have to say. Uh, the reading, I feel like, is much, much better. Yeah. Well, I mean, Patrick Stewart, uh, I think I thought he did a fine job in that one as well. But it production wise, it didn't seem like it was up to to snuff compared to some of the other versions that were out there i have heard his audio version and i agree it's it's remarkable uh, there's one that i wouldn't have guessed would be as good as it was and that was uh by jonathan winters who has an audio huh. version of it and he does the same thing he plays all the characters and uh, that one was pretty good as well <laughs> it was also a rich little one where that was a um oh yeah it was sometime in the 80s a, a television <laughs> special where he plays all the characters he plays all yes <laughs> of course uh rich little um yes that was it's it's on my to-do list i'll get to it eventually but i have a lot of other things i want to get to mm-hmm. uh before it like coca-cola i want to talk about that in particular yeah, yeah. and stuff like that so uh i i try to space out my movie and shows if i can with some other fun stuff as well like toys and you know fashion and stuff mm-hmm. like that so uh that's on my to-do list eventually i get to rich little's version but uh, and uh henry winkler's version as well of an american Christmas oh yeah Carol. yeah 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 <laughs> But, but I think I'm I, with you that uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol is certainly one of my favorite. And yeah. I think it's partly because it's so surprisingly close to the story. You know, yeah. you thought it would just be like really Muppety. And of course it is to a certain extent, but the production mm-hmm. value is just insanely good. Yes. And it really, it tells the story. You're like, huh, okay. I, I wouldn't have imagined it could be as earnest as it was, but, mm-hmm. but, it, but it was. And I think I read somewhere that about 90% of Gonzo's dialogue was taken straight from Dickens novels and, and oh is that right yeah that so that's really nice because you know he's supposed to be Charles Dickens and he's supposed to be mm-hmm. you know the omniscient narrator uh, 
the part that you're right and and you're right when you read the novel or the novella excuse me and and you're going through it um there are a lot of little things that you miss and so as you mentioned that whole part about the uh the the dead is a doornail i like how he kind of digresses into the well you know you think a coffin nail would be the deadest piece of ironmongery around and yeah <laughs> so i it, i like that uh that little little touches that he throws in that you just like you mentioned you just kind of miss that when you get to see it on screen um and a lot of that is and, just because you have to condense unfortunately and you miss out on a lot of great descriptions especially if you're interested in what christmas may have been like for an average family back in victorian times he goes into elaborate detail on what preparing the christmas dinner was like especially mrs um cratchit making cratchit. The, the christmas mm-hmm. pudding and you know oh, how it, it, smel- it smells like a, a laundry uh, room in their house because they have to cook it in a cloth. And all of the stuff about putting the, the, um, the pudding into the copper pot where you have to put it on top of an upturned plate oh, to keep mm-hmm. it from burning. Right. So as the water's boiling, you hear the plate rattling around. There's all these very sensory information. You hear like what it might smell like and look like. And of course, in any movie version, the best you're going to get is just seeing a Christmas pudding put on the, on the table. Right. So yeah, like you said, it's not a long read. It's well worth anyone who really, really wants to get the full experience. Uh, you can't get it through a movie at all. And you mm-hmm. can only get it through either a reading or a full narration. Yes, I, I completely, completely agree. Uh, one of these days, I do want to actually attempt to make a Christmas pudding. I, I've never tried. I'm a little bit nervous about it because uh, I, I know it's if you don't get that steam just right, it can mm-hmm. it doesn't really work. So I'm a little nervous, but I do want to try one of these days. Uh, well, I tried it last year. And so I can give you some advice. Okay. I, I tried to make the traditional Eliza Acton's Christmas pudding. Okay. Uh, this was, and in her cookbook, uh, she called it the author's Christmas pudding. And people wonder whether she is the author uh, mm-hmm. or if she's referring to Charles Dickens, because she's the first person to refer to this thing as mm-hmm. a Christmas pudding. You know, like a lot of our Christmas foods are, it, it would be common to eat rich and fancy foods around Christmas, but they weren't right. necessarily associated tightly with Christmas, like fruitcake or eggnog mm-hmm. were typically just kinds of things you would drink or, or consume um, at just the special times. And right. only later they become specifically Christmas. And the same is true for puddings. You know, they, those were just things that you would eat when it was some sort of a celebration, but Eliza Acton in her cookbook uh, and probably, and it, it was published, uh, I forget when, but it was shortly after a Christmas Carol where she's were referring to it as a Christmas pudding. And it was after that, that this became a pretty much exclusively Christmas kind of food. Um, but anyway, so I, cr- I tried to recreate her, uh, recipe which includes a lot of alcohol um <laughs> and so, okay. know, around christmas time everyone knows a a, a fruit cake with a little bit of liquor on it gives it that special taste right. but you know like moderation is definitely the the key there just a little bit to get the flavor uh where in hers you actually add a bunch of liquor to the the cake okay. and in her recipe it just says add a small wine glass full and it's like what is you know what does that mean uh so i did a little bit of extra research and found out on youtube that they were saying it's it's something you know some i don't know about, about three or four ounces worth and it came out okay but it just tasted so 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 boozy it was overpowering gotcha. and I don't know if, you know back in the day you basically had to add booze to everything to kill off any germs right to keep like it that. yeah mm-hmm. or if people just happened to like a, that extra boozy kick or if i just made it wrong i don't know but it just tasted <laughs> overpoweringly boozy so uh it, it you know, talking about uh, the the Christmas pudding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that usually done on like stir up Sunday? Is yeah, it? yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that came later on once it was associated it was already with associated. Christmas. 
right? Yeah. Then after that, it was, um, yeah, Startup Sunday is, I believe, the first Sunday of Advent or something like that. Uh, so it's the Sunday before. It's the, the last Sunday. Sunday before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the 24th and final Sunday after Pentecost. Although there are three other Sundays in Advent, actually, the prayers actually do start with Stirrup as well. So at the, oh, got it. it could be, uh, you know, it could be associated with any of those other three Sundays. Um, but traditionally, yeah, it was the, uh, the, yeah, the final Sunday of Pentecost. Uh, but yeah, so I, I want to try it. I don't know where to get currants around here. I'm sure there's some specialty stores. I can find some. I get some off Amazon. The hard, the thing you're going to have a really hard time with is finding beef suet. You cannot find that in the United States. You have to order it. And it took about a month for mine to show up. <laughs> but the thing is, like, you'll find, you know, those were just, you know, currants are, they're basically small raisins. Like you can, right. you can use raisins. And if you don't want to use beef suet, use butter, use shortening. It, it's mm-hmm. it, it, uh, the, what I found, because I actually tried making it twice last season, is it's a very forgiving recipe. If you just throw a bunch of stuff that's pretty, you know, <laughs> pretty accurate according to the recipe and boil, right. you know, steam it for three, four, five hours, it doesn't matter all that much. It's going to come out tasting fine. Okay, cool. And you just have to get the good seal on it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Definitely do that. And then this this season, I haven't tried making one yet. I'm going to try a different recipe because I don't want that boozy flavor. But right. what I do want to do is, is then douse it with booze and light it on fire. I didn't get to do oh, that last yeah. season, but I'd really love to do that. That's the that's the fun part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I can imagine what it would take in 18, what is it, 1843, I guess is when it was mm-hmm. released. So it should be around mm-hmm. there. Uh, I can only imagine what, they would have to do to really get that tight seal and and uh, steam it and and just really get it to be good. I don't I don't know uh, how in depth or how precise their their equipment was. I'm guessing at that time. not very at all, especially because you know as you know from reading the novel the or novella the description of the Cratchit's kitchen is also one where you know nowadays every kitchen has an oven. That wasn't true back then. Right. Right. You know, mm-hmm. she had to send the goose out to the cook, uh, the, the, the bakery to, to cook the goose. So in the house, they would basically have the washing copper where they did laundry or some fire where they basically have a, right. like a pot that mm-hmm. could just sit over fire. You know, there are no temperature. You don't set the temperature high or low. It's just, there's a fire. <laughs> and gotcha. what they would do is wrap up the, the pudding mixture in uh, cheesecloth and form a cannonball, because I'm assuming someone like that probably wouldn't have a fancy or ornate right. pudding mold. And right. so, yeah, I, my thinking was that whatever they could come up with, like as long as it held together and tasted okay, it would be a pretty special treat. <laughs> gotcha. Um, now, in this particular version, we get uh, George C. Scott, who I mm-hmm. mostly knew from Patton as as mm-hmm. Scrooge. His he plays Scrooge. Uh, his take is definitely different. He's he's not so much miserly as he is just like a a very strict businessman. I think. Yeah, he's. He's definitely, the, I mean, most of my other experiences with the story is that Scrooge is not only miserly, but just cranky. You know, he's, yeah. you know, if you look at him, he'll scowl at you. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think this this portrayal is much more businesslike and maybe a bit more like introverted, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily actively shooing people away, but just sort of like have no interest in people. That was the sense I got from him mm-hmm. because in a lot of conversations that you see him having, he seems personable enough. He seems like there, there's enough of a, of a conscience to him. Right. Uh, that, and, and I think that really lends to the, the redemption uh, at the end being a little bit more believable, mm-hmm. but he doesn't have that same, uh, you know, like don't even look at him when he's walking down the street kind of feel just someone who's just, too wrapped up in his own stuff to want to deal with other people. That's really the the way that I feel like he portrayed the character. 
Which uh, I tell you, I, like I mentioned earlier, I work in a Christmas store. Some days I really feel that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love working with people. I love talking to people. But there are certain days where after working 10 days straight, I'm just I'm ready to, to take a break. And, yeah. and it's like, let me just go in the back. I'll put some lights and some wreaths and just just mm-hmm. leave me alone and let me do my thing. Unfortunately, I can't because, uh, you know, I'm kind of like an assistant manager. Um, but yeah, I, I, I get where Scrooge is coming from in this one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, there's a story that came out a few years ago called Marley by an author named John Clinch. And it's the, the backstory of Jacob Marley. Really good book. I had John Clinch on my podcast. It's not a Christmas story at all. It okay. really follows Marley. But, you know, Scrooge and Fan is actually a fairly major character. Scrooge is oh, wow. his sister. His sister, um, yeah. But when I was talking to him, I said, you know, there's something about the way that you portray Scrooge that he almost might have seemed like he was on the autism spectrum. And he's like, that's a, he's like, I'm glad you picked up on that. That's exactly where I was coming from, where he's just one of these people who can only see things, you know, very analytically mm-hmm. and wouldn't make eye contact with people and was was antisocial to the point where he couldn't connect. And that really that, that seemed like a really interesting way to portray Scrooge. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously not authentic at all. I mean, Dickens right, was right. doing something very specific in portraying Scrooge as a capitalist who couldn't see the humanity of all the great poverty in London at that time. Right, um, right. So, you know, it's, it's taking it out of that context. But I think it, it also modernizes the story and bring, you know, people can bring a modern sensibility to their understanding of Scrooge. So, you know, I think most people watching any of those specials isn't really looking at it through the lens of like Dickensian history. It just needs to be first and foremost, a a piece of entertainment. And so I think the way that, that um, George C. Scott portrayed Scrooge certainly achieved that. Well, he was very shrewd. I mean, uh, in his dealings with the, those gentlemen, you know, the other businessmen uh, there Mm -hmm. at the, at the station. And, you know, I guess he had some corn or some feed or something he was trying to sell them and uh, they didn't want it a particular price. And so he, basically said okay that's it and so then they you know he raised the price on them and you know i mean just they're back and forth and the way he he dealt with it actually kind of reminds me of uh, of a lot of businessmen that i've worked with where it's mm-hmm. like okay well you know th- that was my offer back then now my offer is just this take it or leave it and you know they they're able to build their wealth and and go you know be successful from there um so i really enjoyed that kind of portrayal from him because you don't see that a lot you basically see the all right well you can't pay foreclosed you know that kind of just mm-hmm. just who cares just stingy i just want my money kind of guy and so this actually made scrooge um rather unique uh, in my mind because he's just he he's more uh, savvy uh, around mm-hmm. you know, with with money not just if you can't pay me too bad so, mm-hmm. so I really enjoyed George C. Scott's portrayal of him uh, as well. And, and that whole, wow, on the autism spectrum, that's actually kind of nice uh, because that, at least in my mind, I can see how that could sour his relationship with Belle a little bit and, and, mm-hmm. and the difficulties, you know, where you're focused on one thing so much that you kind of neglect other things. So that, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting concept. Yeah, great book. I recommend it to everybody. But I always say that Scrooge is in it, Fan is in it. There are some Christmas scenes, but it is absolutely not a Christmas story at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's all right. I don't mind. I like other <laughs> stories. <laughs> we get a few other um a few other actors in here of note. Just uh, David Warner was in it. Um Roger Reese. Uh, I, I know Roger Reese from a lot of the 80s movies that I that I was into as well. So just a few mm-hmm. actors here and there. Um, nothing really 
no one really super famous. I mean, I think George C. Right. Scott was the most famous of, of everyone mm-hmm. in this, but they, I thought they all did fine jobs, you know, acting their parts. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. They were very serviceable in their roles. Nothing mm-hmm. too memorable, unfortunately, but at the same time, I, I thought they, they did well. Yeah. No, I can't really think of any other standout performances. Maybe whoever played Fezziwig. I think that's the scene when I think of the, the movie, that's the one that always comes to mind. Uh, I don't know if it's just because it's the most festive and all the dancing or something like that. Um, the other scene, and you tell me, you've probably read this closer than I have, that I always remember is when Cratchit is saying it's too cold in the office and Scrooge is like, look at me, oh. like, what is this? What is, what am I wearing? Like, oh yeah. Like, what am I wearing? What is this? That's a jacket. Like, see, is that in the book? I don't recall that particular line, that, that piece of dialogue. Cause there's a few things that they threw in that aren't in the book, like the whole exchange with his actual father, you know, appearing. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so that was definitely different. I don't recall that from the book. Honestly, I don't, but he, he said it very sarcastically, right, right. <laughs> which again, kind of made me like, Scrooge a little bit more for some reason. Uh, maybe because I, I I'm I like that misanthrope character, you know, archetype mm-hmm. like a house. You know, Hugh Laurie is house from how yeah, mm-hmm. I, I attracted to the for some reason that I just enjoy that particular uh, that particular character trope. Um, so when he was kind of sarcastic, like, well, you see this thing? It's called a jacket. I mean, right, right. <laughs> it's, it it not only made me laugh, but uh, I, it made me like scrooge a little bit more you know he's he does have a sense of humor he is you know like you said a little bit uh he has personality he has character and so i i think it's better than just that strict miser uh portrayal that you get most of the time but i think that line was also a really clear power play right the whole like because he knew that cratchit couldn't afford afford one but then also making him answer these obvious questions that you know you're just plain to see but still having to go through the process of saying yeah that's a coat that's a waistcoat you know like that that whole thing really yeah i think it was if it was added if it wasn't in the book it was meant to show his sort of uh, i don't know need to dominate or humiliate cratchit (laughs) <laughs> but I will say the, the things that, um, you know, humanize him or make him a little bit more likable is the way that he delivers that line mm-hmm. that everyone who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be buried with a snake of holly through his heart. Mm-hmm. The way that he delivers that line is unlike any other actor I've ever seen, where he's actually like laughing, like he thinks it's a funny joke. Um, whereas if you watch like an Alistair Sim or Patrick Stewart portrayal that, you know, they're saying it with a sneer mm-hmm. and not with a laugh. Yeah, there's, so a, there's a, more venom to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's other than his redemption uh, in the, in this version, that's the only other time you see him laughing. Right. One thing that I did notice about this particular version as well is that whenever, uh, I mean, in most versions, you can already see Scrooge's facade start to, you know, to kind of come down and, and some of those walls just, you know, be, be uh, penetrated when uh, usually right after the first ghost has appeared, but sp- mm-hmm. always, especially after the second ghost in this particular one, it didn't seem like it really hit him until he finally saw that, uh, you know, the, the, the grave, uh, you know, his own, his own mortality and all that stuff. Uh, so it really wasn't until the third ghost that it really got him. Whereas I, I think in most versions, it's, he's already starting to change his heart after at least the second ghost. Yeah. I think it's, there are maybe some more subtle hints where I think when Christmas present, when he sees the Cratchit family Christmas, he seems to, you know, he's like, well, that's a pretty small bird. Like he doesn't, doesn't seem to either care or not care, but the fact that he would note it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I think you're right that I think any sort of hint that he might be starting to see the light, he kind of shakes it off really quickly. Yes. Right? And like he wants to just kind of stay the way that he is. 
I, I did like, um, and, and again, I know we're jumping around, but everybody knows a Christmas Carol. I don't think we really have to get too deeply into the story itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I did like his whole exchange with Fred on Christmas morning when he's apologizing to him. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I came here to say three things and, to, you know, or to do three things. And one of them is to meet your lovely wife, to ask your forgiveness, you know, uh, that whole bit. I I enjoyed that bit because we we normally don't see that that Christmas morning with Fred. In fact, mm. in a lot of versions, we kind of get him with Cratchit, and that's about it. That's that's how right, they, right. they tend to end. So that whole interaction and seeing him him finally embrace you know his sister's son, I I, I that really gave me as they say all the Christmas feels. <laughs> yeah, and no, I think it was a nice little little ribbon to put on the end of that. Yeah, definitely. Of course, Joanne Whaley played his uh, his his niece, Fred's wife. There, I know her mostly from uh, Willow. She she played opposite uh, Val Kilmer in in that movie Willow with. Uh, oh wow, I remember that was another '80s movie. Was that before or after this came out? Uh, it, was, it was after. I think it was like '87 okay. or '88, something okay. like that. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so that's what I mostly remember her from. Uh, and then mm-hmm. she was in like a, a weird oddball movie with Bill Murray called "The Man Who Knew Too Little." Is a, a take on? Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I don't know if I saw that, but I remember knowing about it. Yeah, it's just a little fun. You know, you turn your brain off and enjoy the the mm-hmm. pseudo spyness of it all. But mm-hmm. uh, so that's where I knew her from. David Warner, who played Bob Cratchit, I, I remember him most from um, Tron. He was the villain in Tron. Okay, we're bringing back all the '80s movies. <laughs> well, that's, taking a little trip down memory lane. That's 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 I my think- thing. <laughs> that was another thing like i had seen tron probably without being aware of it you know like either there was a mm-hmm. drive-in near where i grew up where it had two screens um and you know often we go to the drive-in but then we'd look at the other screen and kind of like watch a movie without really like hearing the movie and right. tron might be an example of that and then i didn't actually watch it start to finish until i was much much older it's like maybe in my late 20s or something well, i think he was also in uh time bandits as well and a few oh, yeah? star trek here and there yeah, that's mostly where I know him. He's kind of sci-fi, although he's done a lot of other work. But I thought, again, his portrayal of Bob Cratchit was was very, very serviceable and, and good. It just nothing yeah. stood out to me in particular. But um, I, I did like the way he, he kind of tried to make excuses you know, to his wife about, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's the day. It's Christmas Day, you know, <laughs> which is yeah, another bit in the book that we don't really see translated yeah. very well. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I feel like um, we don't really get a sense of what their household might have been like. You know, there's right. usually in in the the storybooks I grew up with, it shows the Cratchits as being like fairly middle class. You know, mm-hmm. their, their houses seems to be like you know big enough. And, the, and in the book, obviously, the description is very very different. Um, yes. In the book, you, you kind of you well, you don't really meet the other children, but you you kind of get more, you know there's um who are the daughters? Belinda is one of his daughters. Yo, yes, and was it? No, I'm thinking of the Muppet Christmas Carol, uh, Bettina. <laughs> uh, There's two daughters and and one other son, other than Tiny Peter, Tim, right? Who, Peter, yeah. Um, yeah. And in the book, like I don't, I don't know if they have a, a lot of dialogue or action, but you know, you hear about them a lot more. Mm-hmm. You get a sense of the size of the household, and I feel like in, yeah, in this movie and others, they're they're kind of on the sidelines. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, and the reason that that's significant, I think, is when you see their feast. You know, you always hear about it's, it's a meager feast, but they all you know seem to be sitting. Like around a table and their their house has enough furniture in it. And um <laughs> oh yeah, there was that one scene in the movie where they're all sitting around the fire, right? They're sewing. And mm, the mother yes. says, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, so, sorry. No, no, that, that was my only point there. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so uh, special effects-wise, of course, they, they did their best. I know the tombstone from that graveyard scene is is mm-hmm. still there in, in Shrewsbury, uh, where it was oh, filmed. Cool. Yeah. It's interesting. So you can still go visit it and take pictures with it and all that as well. Hmm. Um, I thought it was kind of cool that this whole thing was released theatrically in the UK. I mean, I could definitely see it. Uh, being released theatrically if if they had increased the budget by a few million i think they would have uh they could have done it here in the u.s but Mm -hmm. they just decided to go straight to to tv which a lot of times straight to tv movies um so i'm thinking in particular of uh um the the night they saved christmas one that i just Mm -hmm. recently did with art carney uh you know they they do their best with what they can but oftentimes you're stuck with some some mediocre effects i thought in general Mm -hmm. this this again they they made use of their budget as best they could and i thought they they handled them very well they they weren't awful like i've seen some made for tv movies Mm -hmm. so i don't know if it was just because the source material has that has that particular does well, I should say it this way that because the source material doesn't really have a lot to that needs to be done special effects wise mm-hmm, I, I think mm-hmm. they're able to make it stretch their budget a little bit more and so they're the effects that they do are pretty well what I remember most about it is more the the um kind of a dark moody feel that they give London in it mm-hmm. or you know kind of it's a little foggy and and dirty looking uh, which feels or, authentic know, to me yeah feels, yeah mm-hmm. um and i feel like if, if you capture that mood i can forgive bad special effects or I'd, I'd rather see no special effects at all rather than really bad ones as a matter of fact <laughs> i agree go back to the patrick stewart <laughs> version of a christmas carol i feel like the the effects in that are just a little they, they don't fit they can they feel like <laughs> like another team came in and decided what those should be like and it just really feel like it didn't go together I, I yeah I, I definitely see where you're going with uh and I think if you had transplanted Patrick Stewart into this movie I think uh and George C Scott does a, again a phenomenal job I like the way he does it the cast they seem to have an energy and a synergy that really works but mm. I think if you had transplanted Patrick Patrick Stewart into this version I think it it would have been well better because he's Patrick Stewart <laughs> yeah but uh, I, I did want to talk about the music. Uh, Nick Picot did the music and he wrote mm-hmm. a, uh, he actually wrote a little hymn to go with this. And that's what the main theme is, uh, is based off of. It's called God bless us, everyone. And mm-hmm. it's a nice, uh, it's just a nice little lilting tune. But the cool thing that I like about it is that it transitions from six, eight to four, four quite you know seamlessly. I don't mm-hmm. know if you noticed that there. So uh, again, it's pretty standard. There's just a lot of two, five chords in there. It starts, it's in the key of F. Um, but the the lyrics really got me. So uh, I'll, I just want to read a little bit of lyrics here. It says, um, the past of man was cold as ice. He would not mend his ways. He strove for silver in his heart and gold in all his days. His reason weak, his anger sharp and sorrow all his pay. He went to church but once a year and that was Christmas Day. Hmm. So, you know, he kind of paints a, a nice little picture. Uh, but then he goes on to say, so grant us all a change of heart. Rejoice for Mary's son. Pray peace on earth to all mankind. God bless us, everyone. And on that's when he transitions back to six eight. So it starts in six eight, moves to four. So everything's mm-hmm. very much you know straight eights. And then he again it goes back to six eight. And so I kind of you get that uh, that dichotomy of of 
you know, between lilting and, and just straight. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I think it really plays here because that, that more lilting is, is a lot more joyful because you have the, those mm-hmm. triplets, you know, one, two, three, da, da, da. and so uh, it, it kind of reflects, you know, like Scrooge's innocence and then it's very stern. And then all of a sudden it's back to that joyful feel. So I really, I mm-hmm. thought that was a nice touch that you don't really see in a lot of theme songs nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I was actually researching the the music for this because I was hoping that I could find something similar for an episode that I, I'm working on for this season of Christmas Past. And I, I didn't I never would have thought that there, you know, a soundtrack uh, to it. I mean, of course, every movie has a soundtrack, but one right. that would be released and you could find on Spotify and just listen to. Uh, so I was actually spending some time with the soundtrack a couple of weeks ago. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, so uh, again, it's just it's pretty standard. So uh, in the key of F, uh, he stays on the one chord for a long time, then he goes to a, a just regular progression six, then four, five, one. There's, uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot of four, five, well, you know, that kind of thing. Two, five, ones mm-hmm. all over the place, which is another really standard progression. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I see your guitar in the background, so I, I assume, oh, yeah. you know, well, two, five, uh, one's a standard. That's your jazz progression, right? Mm-hmm. Or no, or am I thinking of a what's the stand, most common jazz progression? Two, five, one. Mm-hmm. Is two, five, one? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. But uh, two fives in general are, are just very popular because of the circle mm-hmm. of fifths. Uh, mm-hmm. And four, five, one is another one for substituting for the for the two chord there. Um, mm-hmm. So we get uh, but on that part, it's, you know, so grant us all a change of heart. Rejoice for Mary's son. So just nice and lilting. Da, 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 mm-hmm. da, da. And uh, I, I really I, I mean, just hearing that every time it uh, it makes me just oh, I, I, I just. I'm so full of joy because really it's, it's so fun and upbeat and up-tempo. And so I thought Nick uh, or uh, Nick Bicot did a, a great job with that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. The uh, Christmas songs that, you know, are radio songs that become favorites. And mm-hmm. uh, just another example of that is in the uh, uh, Disney Christmas Carol. I don't know if you have the, in the, the tape, the audio version, there's an original Disney song and it has nothing to do with Scrooge. It's just, um, I forget the name of it. It's called something like A Very Merry Christmas. Oh, oh what a Merry Christmas Day or something like that. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It has a very Disney feel. You know, you can almost, it does. Yeah. If, the, if the next song were It's a Small World After All, you'd say, okay, yeah, these, these <laughs> songs kind of go together. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the only place you can hear it is on this this recorded book version. And I listen to it every year. It's one of my favorite Christmas songs. But yeah, it's, it's funny how, some of Christmas favorite songs come from unexpected places like that. And I actually have a version that uh, I think the Air Force, like one of the Air Force choirs actually recorded. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I have that on a playlist that I put, uh, <laughs> that I play for my, my three-year-old when she's trying to go to bed. So mm-hmm. you know, she really likes that version. Um, but you're right. There's a lot of just, just different versions that are not standard. Um, I think in this particular hymn that he wrote for this or, or theme song or whatever you want to call it, uh, I think he kind of modeled it after um, Here We Come a Wassily, because that's another one that goes between six, yeah, you know, six, six eight, eight yeah. and two, four, you know, or six, eight, yeah. and four, four. So uh, uh, while they're not very common, I just I, I I'm glad he fixated on that because it mm-hmm. just added a little bit of depth to it because it wasn't so common, at least for in my mind. Mm hmm. So, uh, yes, good job. You can you can go to his website. You can download the sheet music. You can also uh, download the entire soundtrack if you'd prefer. Um, and so that uh, Nick Bicot is the composer there. But, uh, you know, it does make me wonder that uh, what would you say would be your hap hap happiest moment or memory of this uh, particular uh, this particular version here? 
or just a Christmas Carol in general? Yeah, I think from this one, I, I think I already touched on it, the, the scene at Fezziwig's, mm-hmm. which uh, I can't really say why it stands out, it, it just uh, it, other than the obvious, where it just it seems very, very festive. Um, and then I like the way that the, the redemption scene, where he wakes up and he's happy. I mean, if, if you compare that to the way that other actors have done that, like where Alistair Sim does, does a headstand, uh, <laughs> and yes. Patrick Stewart, there's one of the stranger creative choices I've, I've seen him make where it almost sounds like he's like vomiting the laugh where, you know, comes from, you know, literally he's like, mm, mm, and then he starts laughing <laughs> where it seems like it's coming from his, you know, up from his feet uh, out, out his mouth where this one, it just seems like he's just like uncontrollably giggly, you know, where he just kind of can't contain his, his joy. And he's, you know, just like shouting out the window. So I think, yeah, and like you were saying, it, it he doesn't seem to make this progressive change throughout the movie. It's really toward the end. Mm-hmm. I think maybe I see it a little bit differently. I start to see some glimmers of it, right? Uh, and then when it finally comes to being, there, there, it has this pretty cathartic feeling where he's just so giddy he can barely contain himself, and he's just sort of like running around the room. Um, I think of all the actors I've seen portray that moment, this is probably my favorite. And it's, it's I mean, obviously the happiest of the story because right. it's when he's happiest. Uh, so <laughs> yes. yeah, it really, that's a standout uh, scene for me. Yeah, for me, and and that's a that's a great one. Uh, for me, it's definitely uh, there where he's at Fred's house the next day mm-hmm. and he's, he's just apologizing and he wants to be uh, included and join in the games and, and have a wonderful dinner. And I just... I, my mind just furnishes all the 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 rest of the day and and him spending the day with Fred playing the games and and I can just imagine and go on that journey and I think it's it's incredible that he can be so gruff the the day before and then all of a sudden just embrace that and I know that that whole transformation is what the story is about but at the same time mm-hmm. it, uh, it I like the way it's played here because we don't often get to see it and so mm-hmm. it I think as a viewer. I'm able to just picture the rest of, of the story a little bit more. And so I appreciate mm, that yeah. touch. That's a touch that, that uh, is not really thrown in very often. So, mm-hmm. so I definitely can appreciate it. But now we come to my favorite part of the show, which is a little segment I like to call Gag Me With a Spoon. So this is where we do our best impression of our least favorite part of the episode and uh, just kind of set up the scene for us and then give it your best shot. So this is the least favorite part of the movie. And right. I'm trying to. I, yeah, I think so it's that episode. Sorry. <laughs> the, my least favorite is going to be really hard to portray because there were there's no dialogue. Okay. Uh, and this okay. Was, okay. So you'll just have to cast your mind <laughs> to uh, his his time with the the ghost of Christmas yet to come, where when he opens his robes and you see the two famished children. Oh. Um, mm-hmm. And and the reason it's my it's both my favorite and my least favorite because like I said the this, the sort of moodiness and smokiness of the movie I really feel like comes into pretty sharp relief there when yes. you see these emaciated children with you know like red circles under their eyes very and all gaunt that. yeah mm-hmm. um, yeah very very gaunt and you know I remember at the, at, when I was really young that was actually kind of spooky to me mm-hmm. and now I see it as a little bit more you know I don't know like, like punk feeling you know it's, it's <laughs> right a little more like moody and authentic uh so whether it's you know i love it or hate it it's certainly one that i I tend to remember you know it's one of like the maybe five scenes that oh yeah if i played this movie in my mind that's the one that comes about Mm -hmm. but so i guess in terms of an impression if you could just imagine me looking like i have hollow cheeks and circles under my (laughs) eyes i could do that but you know also the the sound that the ghost of christmas yet to come makes there's that sort of like 
don't know how you describe it. Just like 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 trumpets playing out of tune and echoing around mm-hmm. whenever he you know moves his arm or something like that. I don't know if I can do an impression of that, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> but, no, no, that, that's that's okay. Um, so I actually agree that uh, the ghost of Christmas future is is probably my least favorite part. Uh, and this is where Scrooge has been trying to ask him all sorts of questions and. He, of course, receives no answer from this, you know, the spectral figure here. And so Scrooge and I'm going to do my best, George C. Scott. So excuse me, but he goes, (laughs) you're devilishly hard to have a conversation with. (laughs) So I don't know. That was that was my best. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I just thought the line was uh, a little ridiculous, but uh, for for that moment. But it Mm -hmm. actually did kind of fit with Scrooge's portrayal throughout this entire uh, Mm. movie here. Uh, but yeah, it just I that that as soon as I heard that line, I thought, oh, okay, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Is that in the novella? I don't recall that uh, yeah. that particular line, so I'm gonna have to go back and read it now. You know, I do wonder though. Uh, GI Joe, they taught us that knowing is half the battle. What do you think the mm-hmm. other half of the battle is for Scrooge? Let's see. Uh, shop early, I guess, because <laughs> when. <laughs> When Christmas finally comes around, I mean, and this is the other thing, like back in Victorian times, uh, Christmas was not a day off necessarily. Right. right. Uh, and that's true, like even in the United States until in some places, like well into the early 20th century, that schools and banks and everything would be open. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once he finally does come around, the only thing he buys is a, a goose or whatever it was that he bought the Cratchits. Uh, but then he has to go, you know, he goes around to his, his family's house and, and all of that. And presumably now that he's in a good mood, he would want to have gifts to bear, but he never got around to doing any Christmas shopping. Right. So I think shopping early is, is always a good idea. No matter that's, what time in history that's you find definitely. Your that's good advice for life, folks. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's better than mine. I, I thought if, uh, so if knowing's half the battle, the other half is just doing whatever spectral visitors tell you if it's for your own good. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh man, uh, Brian, it's been fun talking with you, but uh, you know, what do you want to plug? Tell, tell me about your show. Yeah, so Christmas Fast has been around since 2016, and when it started, uh, it actually started by mistake, where I was really into NPR-style podcasts, and when Christmas season came around, this was, I think, 2015, I was like, oh, I wonder if if NPR has a Christmas podcast, Uh, and when it turns out they didn't, I said, I wonder what that would sound like. And the only, like I said before, the only other Christmas podcast that even came close was Lee Cameron's uh, The Christmas Stocking. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to him and I said, hey, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. And he was really nice to me and sort of helped me uh, set things up. And, and after that, you know, I vowed, if anyone wants to start a Christmas podcast and they come to me, I'll do everything I can to help them. And uh, I've been doing that for five years now, hoping to, you know, just get people up and running. It's just one of the most right. creatively fulfilling things that you can do is have your own Christmas podcast. Um. But so, yeah, the, that was my, the, the start of the show wasn't, oh, I want to start a podcast or I want to start a Christmas podcast. It was more like I was looking for something and when it didn't exist, I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And for the first couple of seasons, that was the idea that I would put out about 12 episodes where I was telling the backstories to Christmas traditions, doing it in a way that was reminiscent of NPR style news pieces where I'd interview an expert, but then cut it up with clips and share uh, right. Christmas, Christmas memories. Um but after a couple of seasons, you know, uh, as the fan base was growing, I got the feedback that, hey, you know, if you wanted to put out episodes outside of the Christmas season, we wouldn't we wouldn't be averse to that. And if you wanted to do other stuff, too. And so I started doing 
in addition to those core episodes, the backstories, I would also do things like, you know, dramatic readings of forgotten Christmas fiction, mm-hmm. um, just other kinds of off cycle kinds of episodes. And so this season and last season, especially I've been putting out, I think it's like four or five episodes a week, which is a lot to keep yes. up with when you have a, a one-year-old child and a busy job and yes. uh, you know anything at all, like a normal life, but that's what I've been doing. So this season we're doing, I'm trying to think what some of the standouts are, um, a Charlie Brown Christmas, the story nice. of figgy pudding, uh, chestnuts, made for TV Christmas romances, which are, are uh, I, I always like those things where, you know, because Christmas changes so much constantly, right. mm-hmm. we're always in a period where some cultural phenomenon that's popular now might be the birth of a new Christmas tradition. And some are mm-hmm. not, right? Like back in the 60s, all these aluminum trees, it's like, hey, oh, is this yeah. here to stay or is this a fad? <laughs> but there's always something like that. Like, is the ugly sweater here? To, did we witness the birth of a Christmas tradition right in front of our eyes? Or is that going to be a fad too? Mm-hmm. Are the made-for-TV Christmas uh, romance movies that are exploding right now, is is this the equivalent of the music explosion from the 1940s and 50s? Or is this just another thing that's going to come and go, or it's, it's here to stay, but it's not really culturally significant or relevant? Um, so I kind of like to geek out on that, right? This is nice. the, the end goal of my show is this is basically, you know, the, the NPR of Christmas podcasts. So I, I try to like analyze things like that in a way that uses right. a lot of storytelling and feels, feels engaging enough and, you know, some a cross between a, a nerdy deep dive and a warm-hearted celebration. So that's, that's cool. Christmas past, and I've yep been at it for a while. No no signs of slowing down yet. Um, and the, as a matter of fact, I've over the years tried different things. So back in 2019, I did a true crime Christmas podcast. Um, it's not a separate podcast; it's just a story right. that lives within the Christmas past feed called "My Dear Santa." That's the true story of John Gluck who in the early 20th century started this campaign for getting children's letters to Santa Claus answered, but he was also a bit of a con man, really interesting story. <laughs> and I worked with an author named Alex Palmer on that, but I've also done live shows and conference appearances and things like right. that. And so this year I said, well, you know, what, what's next, you know, um, what, what is the next thing that I want to do? And I figured, well, I've been around long enough and built up enough of an audience that maybe I could convince a publisher to put out a book. And so I'm happy to say that all of that is in the works right now. Cool. So Christmas past the book is coming in the fall of 2022 from lions press. And I hope it's not too early to say, um, but it is looking like a, we're going to be doing an audiobook too. Nice. As a a podcaster, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But that's a whole separate thing, right? Like the audio uh, book producers are are separate publishers. So it's it's a whole other thing that you have to do. But um, there will be at least one kind of book, text and or um, uh, audio book coming in the fall of 2022. And then who knows what's after that? I mean, this is always, I'm always looking one or two steps ahead at a time. Uh, I knew the book was, you know, the, the next creative thing and then after that there'll be some other next creative thing as i just keep trying to try out new things and grow and be creative and uh just bring my little brand of christmas cheer to as many people as i can right on well i you brought it to me yours was the first christmas mm-hmm. bad, uh, podcast that i knew about and so uh I, oh, wow. I actually found the christmas stocking after i found yours so thank you for all that yeah (laughs) yeah and it's a shame um lee Cameron, he was you know he's a radio dj and so he really he was doing something similar in that he was doing the history behind christmas traditions Mm -hmm. he would usually play some kind of song a christmas song and he was really good at connecting with his audience i feel like that was 
the two things that I took from him mm-hmm. were that, you know, the way that he engaged with the audience, um, you know, especially Christmas, even the largest Christmas podcast is still a small podcast, comparatively right. speaking. Right. And, you know, you really want it to feel like a family celebration. You really mm-hmm. want the listeners to, to feel like they're, they're part of Christmas with you rather than, you know, simply putting out content. So right, I really took right. that lesson from him that like, that's, that's how you make something that feels special. And also that a, that a podcast episode can be like 15 minutes long and that's okay. Yeah. Um, because most, you know, the most popular podcasts are well over an hour long. So, or at least a half an hour. I was like, Oh, would people really listen to like a 12 minute episode? And but yeah, apparently they do. And, and lots of them are willing to do that, especially for Christmas stuff. You know, like mm-hmm. this is, something that, you know, might just last the ride to the store to do some Christmas shopping, or you can have it on while you're wrapping presents or, or something like that. So, yeah. Nice. But yeah, I'm sad that he doesn't do the episode, the, the podcast anymore. Yeah. I was, I was kind of bummed about that. Uh, when I formed our little Twitter group, I, I made sure mm-hmm. to include him because I heard he was kind of still active on Twitter a little bit. So I thought, Hey, let's, let's yeah, for sure. Cause I'm sure he has great info to share and just maybe just, might want to share some with us yeah i know that he's i've seen him a little bit active on facebook i know that he had a career change uh and he went back oh, to grad okay. school and now he's he's doing some kind of teaching or something like that and i know he's very very busy with that for a while and right. that might have been why he stopped back in i think it was 2018 or 2019 that he stopped putting out new episodes uh, but also he had been doing it for 10 years and he has over 150 something episodes out mm-hmm. so you know maybe i mean i i'm not looking forward to this but eventually there will be a time when christmas past comes to an end um the the original goal was to take all of the familiar christmas traditions and tell the stories behind them mm-hmm. and what i don't want to do is get to the point where i've done all of that but then in an effort to just keep things going then i'm doing stuff that no one cares about or it's a right. real strain to try to make it feel relevant right I mean, sooner or later i will have covered everything and then the show's going to be over but i don't think we're we're not near that point uh anytime soon i'll last at least 10 years and probably more than that nice and i i know what you mean uh like my goal has always been just to make people feel like they did when they were a kid on christmas morning and they rush to mm-hmm. the tree and see the the presents under the tree so mm-hmm. if i can uh do that in any tiny little way i'll definitely keep doing it as long as i can so yeah but uh again brian thank you so much this was a lot of fun just chatting with oh, I, had a, I had a blast thanks for inviting me yeah anytime you're always welcome and so i will end it by saying so grant us all a change of heart rejoice for mary's son pray peace on earth to all mankind god bless us everyone and check us out on our social media pages facebook and instagram at totally rad christmas and twitter at rad christmas and if you're feeling like scrooge on christmas morning Leave us a review on iTunes. Not only does it help us reach more people, but you also get a free sticker. Now, don't forget to check out our merch shop on tpublic.com and our brand new website, courtesy of Tis the Podcast Elf, Tom Crow. Later, dudes. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Jess. And we're we're Hallmark Hallmark and and Jess. Jess. (laughs) I feel like we're in a car dealership commercial. (laughs) We swear we won't talk like this during the podcast. There's two things we love most in this world. Hallmark movies and Lacey Chabert. And we're breaking down all of your favorite Hallmark movies like... A Very Merry Mix-Up. Rocky Mountain Christmas. And the All of My Heart series. Tommy, please be my husband. So tune in every Wednesday. Today!